Hello, welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour. I'm your host, Randy Sutton. And uh, before we get to our guest, I want to tell you a little bit about the show. If this is your first time listening or watching here on the America Out Loud Network, I'm a 34-year law enforcement veteran, a retired police lieutenant from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. I'm the author of a number of books, including the soon-to-be-released, uh, well, I kind of like this title myself, and it's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you like this title? Yeah, that's cool. okay. Rescuing 911: The Fight for America's Safety. And I'm also the founder of an organization called The Wounded Blue, and we are the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers, a nationwide charity. And the Wounded Blue Hour, this whole show is dedicated to the physical, the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual health of the American law enforcement community. So thanks for joining me here today. We always begin our show here um, paying homage and memorializing those who have made the ultimate sacrifice and given their lives in the line of duty. So since last week, unfortunately, two more officers gave their lives in the line of duty. The first is police officer Richard Mendez of the Philadelphia Police Department. Police officer Richard Mendez was shot and killed at the Philadelphia International Airport's Garage D at about 11 p.m. He and his partner arrived in the parking garage preparing to start their shift when they observed subjects breaking into a vehicle. As they approached the men, the subjects fired at them. Officer Mendez was struck multiple times and his partner was hit in the arm. Officer Mendez was transported to the medical center where he succumbed to his wounds at 11.34 p.m. The suspects fled in a stolen vehicle. One of the suspects who died from gunshot wounds was dropped off at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. The rest of the suspects remained at large until October 16th when an 18-year-old suspect was arrested. Officer Mendez has served the Philadelphia police for almost 23 years and was assigned to the airport unit. He is survived by his wife and daughter. Police Officer Richard Mendez, Philadelphia Police Department, Pennsylvania, end of watch, Thursday, October 12th, 2023. And the second is Lieutenant Milton Resendez of the San Benito Police Department in Texas. Lieutenant Milton Resendez was shot and killed during a police pursuit at the 1100 block of North Sam Houston Boulevard in San Benito. At 10.58 p.m., the San Benito Police Department was notified that a fleeing vehicle being pursued by the Texas Department of Public Safety was entering their jurisdiction. Lieutenant Resendez was traveling north on North Sam Houston Boulevard when the fleeing vehicle approached from the southbound lanes. The subjects fired at his patrol vehicle. One bullet hit the front of his vehicle and the second struck the driver's side door. One of the bullets pierced Lieutenant Resendez in the abdomen below his vest. He was transported to Valley Baptist Medical Center where he succumbed to his wounds. The two subjects were arrested after a pit maneuver stopped their vehicle. They have been charged with evading arrest, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, and capital murder. Lieutenant Resendez has served with the San Benedito Police Department for 27 years, previously served with the Brownsville Police Department and Palm Valley Police Department. Lieutenant Milton Resendez, San Benito Police Department, Texas. End of watch, Tuesday, October 17, 2023. Each of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty, serving their communities. Besides those officers who gave their lives this week, more officers were shot. Um, as of October 1st, 290 police officers have been shot in the line of duty. That's 
astounding number. It's literally more than one every single day. So when I talk about the war on cops, the war on cops, of course, is more than just the physical war where police officers are, are attacked and physically harmed. But the, the war on cops is much more insidious than that. It's, it's the, the, the media's attack on law enforcement. It's the politicians who have waged war upon the, the, very, the very agencies that are serving and protecting the communities that they've been elected to serve. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that shortly. But um, uh, I ask you to think about these men and women, the sacrifice that they make. And remember that the Wounded Blue is the national assistance and support organization that supports these men and women. So I'd love you to go to thewoundedblue.org, hit that donate button, and see what we do, see how we help, and you can be a hero to these men and women as well. So now I'm going to introduce to you my guest. I'm very happy to have him in studio with me because he is a Las Vegan and he is uh, an 18-year law enforcement veteran. He's a police officer with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. He's currently a SWAT operator and uh, he's also the author of a brand new book which we're going to talk about. And he is my friend and my, uh, my buddy, Alan Goodrich. Alan, thanks and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Randy. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure, and the pleasure is mine. So let's talk about you for for a little while here. Um, you've been a police officer for 18 years. That's a good long time. It's not 34, Randy, but... <laughs> <laughs> you, you might get there. You uh, might get hopefully. there. Um, let's talk about, first of all, what was it within you that um, made you to decide made you decide that you wanted to enter law enforcement and make that your career well i mean uh I, you know i know your backstory as well and, and i think it's pretty typical for guys like you and me uh, i i think at a very 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 young age all i could remember is wanting to be in law enforcement and i think it started way back when i was a kid um watching the dare officer you know walk into our classroom and just being mesmerized you know, in elementary school and looking at that beast of a man and just looking at him being like, I want to The beast of a man was probably five foot two. Yeah, and I was (laughs) one foot one, but, uh, you know, I just always looked up to him. As long as I can remember, I wanted to do that job, just seeing the uniform and the service that they'd provide and just how they carried themselves. As far back as I can remember, that's always, always been what I wanted to do since childhood. Well, you accomplished your goal. How old were you when you, uh, when you got on the department? 21. So you literally, at the very, at the beginning of your adulthood, yeah. your legal adulthood, you got on the department, and you your first department is the same department you've been with the whole time, the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police. Yes, sir. All right, let's talk about your career. Um, go through, you know, you, you went through the academy, you went through field training, and you were assigned as a police officer. Tell us a little bit about your assignments. Sure. You know, I, I got real lucky from the beginning. Um, we finished our field training portion, and uh, I spent just a short time in patrol. And, and at the time, they put together a, a, a mobile crime saturation team where they take a bunch of young cops, and we throw them in patrol cars, and they don't handle calls for service. They just go into areas of town and neighborhoods and just and just do proactive police work. So I got pulled up to the saturation team very quickly in my career. And it was kind of cool because that, it was my first chance to actually get to work with a, a team, you know, in a team environment, as opposed to just handling calls for service and being a patrol officer. So Which I got, later on would serve you well. Well, it, it does. And, and I can talk a little bit about that later. But, um, but yeah, so I started out on that saturation team. Um, 
then kind of moved on a little bit to what was called the Homeland Security Saturation Team, which had a little bit different mission, but still kind of a proactive police work. Um, and then from there, I had goals and ambitions of being a detective and went through a few different bureaus um, along the way to my SWAT career. Okay, so so you did detective work. Um, now, I, I, for, for our, our viewers, um, the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department is a combined agency. It was combined from the Clark County Sheriff's Department with the Las Vegas City Police back in 1972. Now, detectives are, um, it's, it's it, unlike places like New York City and some other cities where a detective is an actual rank that is, you go from patrol officer to detective. In the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, it is what is basically considered a lateral move. It's just an assignment, but you're still a police officer. Correct. And then, okay, so you did you did your patrol, you did saturation team, you did detectives. Then you decided to join the SWAT team. Now, tell us about that experience when you, first of all, why did you decide SWAT? Well, you know, it probably goes back to my childhood as well. So I always wanted to be a police officer, but there was one person in particular who really, really influenced me, and that was probably around 18 years old. And he's a legend on the department, as you are very aware, but a lieutenant, and then he became a captain at the time. Um, but at that time, he was Lieutenant Commander Larry Burns. So I remember sitting in a youth group um, kind of an organization, a church And this function. was before you were a cop. Yeah, I'm, I'm in high school. I'm probably 18 years old. Already made up my mind that law enforcement was the way to go. And I'm sitting in a, a room and, and in walks Larry Burns and he just mesmerized the place with his, uh, with his stories about SWAT and uh, the missions they would do and the camaraderie and the teamwork. And I'm sitting in the very back because I'm 18 years old and I don't want to be in this church group, you know, and I'm like, I don't want to be here. And my parents made me come and, <laughs> and I'm sitting in the back there and just Larry walked in and just I was zoned in. And for those people who don't know, Larry Burns is just a captivating individual, you know, mountain of a man. He was 6'4", 250 pounds of muscle and just this deep voice. And he just told stories that just sucked you right in, you know, and, <laughs> and I just sat there and listened to those stories and knew you know, listening to him that that was going to be the end goal. Uh, it took a little while to get there, you know, about 12 years or so, but uh, I, I knew upon hearing Larry Burns that that's where I wanted to go. You know, I want to talk, that, I, I, the reason I want to talk about this is because it really touches on something that is not talked about that much in when you talk about law enforcement, and that's about creating a legacy. You know, um, the lives that, that police officers can touch in all kinds of different ways. Um, Larry Burns touched your life. You know, you're, you're a young man, you're 18, and you're, 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 you haven't entered policing yet. And yet, from that appearance in your life, it actually set um, something in motion that literally changed the course of your life. Absolutely. So, you know... When you think about policing now, how does that play in your life when it comes down to uh, understanding that what you do can change lives forever? I mean, that's a, that's a big one to unpack, but um, the older I get and the more mature I get in my career, those moments mean more and more. You know, and Larry was the kind of guy who 
being the commander of the SWAT team and super busy with his personal life, if you came up to him and you had a question, he would give you his time. You know, and I was a, a just a high school kid and I, I'd stop him in a hallway and just, hey, how are you, sir? And he would stop what he was doing and he would talk to you. He was just genuine about it. And so those moments and having learned from just those short moments with him, you know, I kind of look back and, and when we're on a, you know, a community event or something where we have the uh, equipment out for the public to come up and shake our hands and meet us and that kid runs up to you and talks to you, like I really just kind of think about those days with Larry and how he gave me two seconds and, and, and I try and do that same thing because that little kid someday may be, you know, sitting right here. No, exactly, so. exactly. And I would you would it be fair to say that that relationship that you had with Larry that that you know eventually you know deepened uh, because of of the the proximity when you became a police officer would would you would you say it would be fair to say that that might have played a role in as your you know as what you're doing now in your in your brand new fledgling writing career yeah 100 percent 100 percent and you know I you know, I hate to make this a Larry Burns show, but the man, <laughs> the man was a big part of my life. And uh, if there was a nickel for every single person that had a story like like mine with Larry, you know, there's a lot of money out there. But um, yeah, it was a huge, it was a huge influence on going forward with this project. Not just, you know, doing the job, you know, clocking in, clocking out, reporting for duty, going to my assignments, doing my missions, but just taking an extra step and just and and having a legacy, you know, and 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 being that person that he was and trying to honor him by by doing what he did. So let's talk, I want to talk about SWAT for, for a few minutes. You know, it's a it's a, a a job like no other in policing. And I think that there's also a lot of um, misinformation and disinformation about being a SWAT operator. You know, there there um, there have been movies. There's TV shows. It's a very glamorized uh, type of assignment, but it's also a very very challenging assignment, both physically, emotionally, psychologically, because of what what a, what a SWAT officer sees is different um, from what a, a a beat patrol officer sees. So let's talk about when when you are activated. Um, talk about some of the the roles you have to play, and of course, there's also a specific role on the team. So, if you would, let's talk about your role on the team and how this assignment um, differs from being a patrol officer. Sure. So, um, we're probably probably one of the, if not the, busiest teams in the country. Uh, we have 40 or so operators, and uh, we handle all the high-risk search warrants, our barricaded individuals, and, and uh, hostage rescues, and, and a handful of other jobs. But um, with that job comes a lot of three-in-the-morning phone calls and missing soccer games from the kids and, you know, getting called out in church or, or the most inconvenient times. But uh, when that phone rings, we run to our office, which is our, our vehicle, you know, and we have a certain amount of time till we got to respond to a certain area. And then, like you were saying, we all have our, our specific roles. So um, not to talk too much about tactics, but in, in general, our, our team's broken up into we have our leadership um, and then we have 
pretty much three different roles. We have a, a sniper cadre, uh, a breaching cadre, and then a, uh, a less lethal cadre, if you will, or we call them grenadiers. So basically, those three cadres can make up any mission. So if we have a, a situation, the snipers have a role, breachers have a role, and then your less lethal cadre has a role. And then if the situation's a real bad hostage rescue type situation, the, the breachers and less lethal cadre will be basically be your entry team. So we're all, we're all entry operators with, a, with our own side specialty. Right. Okay. So that, that you explain it really, really well. Um, and, and I think it's important for the audience to understand, you know, uh, you know, the, the different roles and, and, uh, and, and how it differs from patrol because patrol, you're out in a patrol car and you're answering calls for service with a SWAT, uh, with a SWAT team, you are relegated to one particular, um, uh, you know, mission basically, and that is to be available for calls. Uh, you you mentioned something that that I wanted to I wanted to just touch on a little more, and that is high risk search warrants. You know, the making an entry into a home or into a, a trailer or any other other structure is the most dangerous thing probably that a police officer can do, and so um, the the unlike many other police agencies where they don't have the resources to have a SWAT team do that. And it's, kind of, and it's up to that patrol officer or that detective to make those entries. And that's why we see a lot of these officers killed sure. because they don't have the training and experience to do it. So one of the things that I think that, that, that Las Vegas Metropolitan Police do that is um, really effective, and, and tell me if you agree with this, is that the assignment goes to the SWAT team whenever there is a high-risk search warrant. And don't you, you, do you, would you concur that, that that probably saves police lives? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's, there's no question about it. Um, you know, from, from the outside perspective looking in, you know, I, I could see how our job would seem one of the more dangerous jobs in there, but it, I don't feel that way from day to day because when, when I go somewhere, I know what I'm getting into. You know, I'm briefed on on the situation. I'm briefed on the crime at hand, and I'm going in there with 39, you know, <laughs> great, great friends of mine. You know, they're all a lot larger than me, and we're all on the same page, and 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 we're we're more family than friends. You know, all of us. It's it's a very very close unit. So when we get even these bad situations, I look behind me and I look in front of me, and I see my best friend behind me here, and I see my brother in front of me here. And the boss says go. It's it's not as scary as you would think because there's so much there's so much faith that comes in with your your brother to your left and to your right. It's a different feeling than being in patrol where, you know, you're past your coworker here and there and hey, have a great weekend. You know, I'm spending the weekend with my teammates. You know, we're barbecuing together and we're we're more family. You know, I know my teammates' kids' birthdays and so. Anyways, it, it would seem more dangerous, but also there's the fact that you have incredible equipment. Yeah, you're, you're given that that opportunity to have, uh, you know, vests that or, or yeah, know, body armor that is far superior to that of the patrol officer. And not just a patrol officer, but we are so spoiled in Metro. I mean, we are so spoiled. We have <laughs> top of the line gear, top of the line leadership, top of the line management, top of the line support. The public supports us. Um, we have great equipment, great people. We are just absolutely spoiled. And even compared to some of the SWAT teams around the country, you know, they, they, they don't have near the support or, or protection or equipment or training that, than we do here. So we're, we're extremely fortunate in Las Vegas. I'm just super spoiled here. 
But with that comes challenges that, um, that come fast and furious. You know, when you are making entries, dynamic entries into uh, homes where um, you're facing gunfire, how many times do you, in your career, do you think, uh, as you've made entry, that you have been uh, subject to, uh, um, to, sh to being shot at? You know, that's a good question. I don't think I've kept track. The fact that you haven't kept track answers the question quite well. No. So, you know, most police officers throughout their entire career will never use their weapon to, sh to shoot at anyone. They'll, they may draw it and they use it as, as a threat, but they will rarely utilize their weapons. I think it's something like only 5% of the law enforcement officers in this nation will ever actually physically use their weapons in the line of duty. And as a, as a, a member of the SWAT team, um, how many times do you think you've used your weapon? Well, I've, I've been in my own shooting once, so I have, I have one shooting of mine. Um, but um, like I said, we're the busiest team in the country, and so it's, it's, it's more common, unfortunately, right. than so you, you So you, you have faced gunfire. You've also faced something. You know, when we talk about the so – I want, I want the audience to be familiar with this term, critical incident. Critical incident is something that, that law enforcement officers face numerous times throughout their career. It's a, it's, it can be a shooting. It can be something. It's something that, that has a strong emotional upheaval, if you will, um, an incident that, that uh, has a, a dramatic effect on a police officer's life. So the number of critical incidents that a police officer faces during their career is far far above the number that that, that a you know people in a civilian life will ever ever have to endure but even when you talk about being a SWAT operator those critical incidents come much faster much more furious and so they can have a, a strong emotional effect um, I know from from our talks in the past that you have faced some serious, serious um, bad stuff in your career, and uh, and would you would you not agree with me that it can have an effect on your emotional well being? Yeah, one hundred percent. You you know we we especially on a SWAT team we try and put on a you know a persona of I'm I'm strong enough I can handle this and you know I'm I'm tough enough to handle this and and we try and outwardly act a certain way but you know you you don't get to pick how your brain works and you know some things will affect you more than others and um and you might think something won't affect you and then you're thinking about it for you know weeks on end so you know the brain works so just so mysteriously that something will affect you real hard and other things won't but just the accumulation over time it, it does get heavy for sure and now we're i, I want to so now i want to kind of switch switch topics here, if you will. And that is, <clears throat> I want to talk about the, the book that's coming out. And I also want to, want to talk about not just what the book is and what it's about, but the, um, the sense of, did, did your career and did the, the, the critical incidents that you faced over your career, did that play a role in your, in your decision to become an author? 
Yeah, I mean, I, you want me to get into it and, and do the whole... Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to have to in... take a break here in just a okay. minute. So um, before we get into that, because that's a there's there's a lot of there's a lot of meat on that bone yeah, that we I want that, that I do want to get into. But um, before we do that, your family life. Let's talk about that. All you right. you've got you've got a wife. You've got children. How does the job affect them? Well, they're they're younger now, so I think time will tell when they're adults. You know, are they going to be dentists and doctors, or <laughs> or am I going to have to deal with something else? But uh, I think time will tell. But no, I got some great kids. I got a great structure. Um, you can't do what we do and not have that. And 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 those kind of guys when they start to test here, if you see cracks in their personal life or their home life, it, it'll show real fast because those 3 a.m. calls come a lot. And if somebody's not there or someone's not available to watch the kids or, you know, pick up rides or, or be there for you when you get home, it, it's, it'll fall apart fast. So I've been really just super lucky and having a, you know, an awesome best friend for a wife and, and my kids, you know, they've, they've been around it pretty much their whole lives. Between SWAT and my detective positions, I've always had you know, call out. Right. Type so they're, they're used to it. Yeah. Dad's, dad's been gone at three in the morning <laughs> since, since they, they can remember. So they, they're very much used to it. You know, they, they hear the, they hear that certain sound on my phone and they're all like, bye dad, you know? <laughs> um, so they're, they're used to it, but you know, I, I hope we're, you know, it's, we still got to find time for the family and it's, 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 it can be challenging to juggle, but you know, I think time will tell how, how they're going to do at the end, but I hope they're doing all right. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. 
code OUTLOUD. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. One Nation Coffee. One Nation Coffee. Patriotic, uh, veteran-owned, very, very good coffee. I actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online, they bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee, you can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these, uh, you know, the, the containers that you put in your Kerrig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee, go to One Nation coffee.com order your coffee and uh you'll get great coffee and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the wounded blue so uh go to one nation coffee.com Well, I want to tell you about another company that that truly supports law enforcement. It's actually law enforcement owned, and they have a very unique um, mission. And uh, I want to be, and it always, everything on the show is involved with law enforcement and and, uh, touching their lives. So it's a a company called OfficerPrivacy.com. OfficerPrivacy.com affords um, law enforcement officers the opportunity to actually make it more difficult to find them on and information, personal information about them on the internet. So when, when I first found out about officerprivacy.com, it was by the owner who was a, uh, a retired police officer. And he showed me just how easy it was to find out where I live and my personal information and all kinds of stuff. And it's accessible on the internet. Well, when you talk about how um, you know the, the officer safety is so is such an important topic to all of us, you owe it to yourself if you're law enforcement or have been to go to officerprivacy.com, see how they can safeguard your personal information. There were like 31 things that they removed from the internet which pointed to my personal information. And I was I was blown away by it, and really opened my eyes. So, there. And, and by the way, everybody that works for them is or was an active duty police officer. So uh, he's very, very, uh, very, very um, careful about who sees the information. So go to officerprivacy.com, check them out. It's not expensive, and they. I mean, it's it's very, very labor intensive stuff, and uh, we all owe it to ourselves and to our families to make it as safe as humanly possible. So go to officerprivacy.com, tell them Randy sent you. 
I also want to talk about the Wounded Blue. A couple things. The Wounded Blue is the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. And it is an organization made up of all law enforcement officers who have been shot or stabbed or beaten or run over and screwed up and screwed over. And believe me, it's happening all over the country. We talked about the, the, the officers who were, who were killed in the line of duty, but we also talked about those who have been shot in the line of duty. And that doesn't even count. Last year, more than 60,000, you heard that number right, 60,000 American law enforcement officers were physically assaulted in the line of duty. They were shot, they were stabbed, they were beaten, et cetera. Well, that's, an, that's, that's a number that's, that's hard to really wrap your head around, but it shows, it shows the difficulties that, that all of these officers are facing when it comes down to their officer safety. And we, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Officers is the only organization of its kind because we have, we have teams of trained police officers, all who have experienced serious injury, whether that injury is physical or emotional and psychological, and they've, they face the dragon of post-traumatic stress and come out on the other side. So if you are a law enforcement officer or have been, and you've been struggling, please go to thewoundedblue.org. Hit that contact button. Call that phone number and say, you know what? I think I need to talk to somebody. Everything is confidential. We're literally a resource for every police officer in America. And we're also a resource for every police agency in America. You know, let's face it. When a police officer is hurting, either physically or psychologically, many officers don't want to go to their own departments for reasons of, of trust often or, um, or you know, being, feeling like they, they might be um, looked at in a different way. And that's why the fact that the Wounded Blue is confidential is so important. The only person that we owe allegiance to is you. So if you're a cop and you're struggling, please go to thewoundedblue.org. And if you are someone who supports law enforcement, you know, very often I'm asked, Randy, I support my law enforcement, but I don't know how to show how. Well, I'm going to tell you how you can do it. You just go to thewoundedblue.org, hit that donate button, and give what you can. If it's 10 bucks a month, fantastic. If it's 25 bucks a month, whatever you can do. And if you are uh, an organization or a company that wants to really support and become a sponsor and a partner of The Wounded Blue, contact me personally, randy at thewoundedblue.org. That's randy at thewoundedblue.org. These men and women need heroes, and you can be a hero to them. Let's get back to my guest, Alan Goodrich. So, Alan, let's get uh, let's get into your book. First of all, what was it that that gave you the impetus to begin writing? What was it that that moved you to say, you know what, I've got something to say, and I want to say it? How did, how did it come about? Um. So, you know, you were talking about struggles and your you know guys hurting and, and and dying inside um it really started with uh we, you know you and i refer to them as critical incidents or you know i was involved in a shooting um it was a swat incident we had a, a hostage rescue situation and um the negotiations went bad and um long story short you know i had to end up taking the young man's life and uh you know we were talking about you don't get to pick how your your brain works and some things affect you and some things don't well um 
when that situation was over, you know, my brain would just put this on a loop just over and over. And I was really good about outwardly projecting like everything was fine. You know, I would put on my uniform and I would smile and joke around like I always do. But, you know, inside that that situation would just play over and over and over and over. And uh, I, I began a, a pretty bad downward spiral in my personal life. You know, I, I, uh, I turned to alcohol and uh, a lot of things were suffering that, that nobody really knew about except for those really, really closest to me. You know, um, my friends at work, you know, thought everything was fine. Even a lot of my family were like, hey, he's fine. He's doing well. But, you know, I was, I was hurting. Um, one of my good friends and mentors knew what was going on with me. And, and he kind of pulled me aside and sat me down. And he said, hey you know, um, write down that incident, everything that happened, you know, beginning to end, put in a folder, lick it, put in your filing cabinet, never look at it again. He's like, that's what I've done. And you know, this guy was a seal. He was a sniper. He's been in a lot of incidents and, and he, and he was somebody I really looked up to. And so that's what I did. I, I sat down and, um, I didn't just write out the incident like, you know, you would do an officer's report or something. I didn't just say, you know, on this date and time, I, I kind of wrote it almost like third person, like fit for like a screen, right? You know, like maybe my kids will open it someday and, and, you know, read it and see it. So I kind of started, you know, writing that incident out and I got done with it. I put it in the filing cabinet and I never looked at it again. And it helped. It did. Um, for a while I was, you know, doing better, but you know, those, those days would come like waves, you know, they would crash and then it would recede and it would crash and it would recede. And when those waves would start to hit me rather than, you know, turn to drain a bottle and pass out in bed and wake up in a pile of puke, I decided to sit down at a laptop and just start writing. And, um, you know, I would write down all the cool stories I had, you know, this shooting, that shooting, or this incident, that incident. But for me, the, the, the fun things to write, the things that really brought me out of that darkness the most were like, just writing stories of things that I had seen throughout my career of, of kindness or compassion or charity, you know? And so I started just looking back on my career and, and remembering things I'd seen other cops do. And I'd be like, well, this needs to be, you know, memorialized. And so I would start writing down stories of things I'd seen of friends of mine and just had a big stack of them, you know? And uh, after a while, we looked at that stack and I remember reaching out to you and like, what, what do we do with this, you know? And um, I, I've, I kind of used it as my therapy, if that, if that will, to, to start. So my therapy, you know, I, the doctors never helped, you know, talking to the psychiatrist and that psychiatrist, they, they, they make you go to those people and you, you say the answers they want to hear and, um, and you go back to work. But, but truthfully, my therapy, my, my healing process was, was through writing words of incidents I had seen. It's very interesting that, that and, the, and the incidents that you focused were incidents of kindness and compassion as opposed to the blood and gut stuff that that you know makes up a lot of um, a lot of the, you know the memories of of you know things we see and do as a police officer. So it's interesting that 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 was your focus, and that's what helped you kind of escape the darkness. Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's get more into it. So you you basically began writing as a catharsis as something that would be um, a, a mechanism of self-healing. Uh, did you have any plans for this to turn into what it eventually became, which is a novel? 
Yeah. So I, I mean, after I had this giant stack of cool stories and, and, and wonderful just incidents and, and, and kindness that, and, and for me, it was kind of like, I wanted to tell those stories because a lot of times, I mean, you've seen it as well. We, we go on our shift and we do our job, you see something and it never gets talked about. And so for me, the, the catalyst of, of like bringing this to the public's light and, and seeing that we're not the bad guy, you know, we we do good things. Um, was during those riots in 2020. So during the riots of 2020, um, you know, there's a lot of civil unrest. And at that point, I had a good stack of, of stories and papers and, 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 and things that I did want to bring to the public. Um, we're standing out there during those riots, and there's people calling us every name in the book and shouting at us, yelling at us, spitting at us, throwing stuff at us. But what they didn't understand was, you know, we're out there we're out there taking that abuse and taking those words, but in a moment's notice, if something were to happen to that crowd, we would stand in between that crowd and whoever's trying to do something to them. And so I'm just looking at this crowd and, and I just, my heart would break because I'm just looking at you and, and I'm looking at this person. I'm like, I'm not your enemy. I'm here to protect you from some jerk who's planning something dumb. And I would stand in between you and that bad guy in a moment's notice, no matter what you called me. And so I wanted the world and those people to know that we weren't the bad guys. We're, we're not the bad guys. Yeah, there were some things that had happened during that time that weren't good, no, no doubt. And, you know, made national news and caused a lot of stuff, but we weren't those people. And I wanted those people and everyone else to see the stories that you've seen and that I've seen throughout our careers that, that we're, we're doing this for a noble reason. So when those riots happened, um, I kind of went to my sister, my little sister, Caitlin, she's, she's awesome. And I said, hey, I've got this collection of stories and they're telling what it's really like to be behind the badge, you know? How do we put this into something that makes sense? And, and you know, I grew up reading your book, The, uh, the True Blue, and, and a lot of cool stories. And, and I didn't wanna copy you per se and just tell cool stories. I wanted to, I wanted to just, have fun with it, entertain and, and, and put people in the seat that you and I were in or are in. And so my sister and I kind of sat down and we scribbled out some notes and we kind of just made a novel, you know, but they're all stories that are true throughout our career, throughout my career. But we kind of developed a few characters because we had to change names of friends and stuff who want to keep private. But we went through and we kind of developed a timeline and a story and we put all these stories together and we tell different perspectives of these stories and they're just just heartwarming things that actual cops have done and um we we were really just scratching our heads on on how to uh how to kind of bring it all together and uh we just had an idea to, to take that october 1st incident that that uh, route 91 festival and and have all our characters kind of come together at the end and and not not necessarily tell the tragedy of that day, but tell the the, the wonderful things, the self-sacrifice that the men and women out there did. Not, not just police officers, but all first responders from nurses to paramedics, firefighters, cops, EMTs, the whole, the whole gamut of first responders were out there. So we wanted to kind of paint the picture for people what it was like to be out there during that day. And so that's what we did. So this is told in as a novel. It's not. It's not a um, uh, told as a um, you know an autobiography or anything like that. It's 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 told. It's um, brought to the public as a novel, and I've had the opportunity to to read it, 
And so I, for, for those of you who, um, who love to read, uh, let me tell you this, that, that th this book is, a, is, is an incredible art piece of, of art. It really is. Um, and uh, what I've really found fascinating about it was the way, now this is the first, this is the first book you've ever written. And, um, and it's, a, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do, to put onto paper, especially the personal feelings that you have, and, and expose yourself, basically, um, expose your heart, expose your soul on the written page. But you use this as a, a methodology of self-preservation for, you know, emotional issues and, and, uh, and dealing with the, you know, the inhu inhuman things that, that you saw as a police officer. If you would explain how by taking those words and putting them onto paper over an extended period of time, um, even before you had the idea to put them into what is eventually became your, your, your novel, would you suggest that for other officers that as a way of coping with the things that, that uh, they're exposed to? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely worked for me. I know, I know it worked for me, and, and you know that. You know, we've, we've been friends for a while, and, and you know how, how much it's meant to me. Um, I don't know if it's for everyone, you know, but I, 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 I want those officers who are in those dark places, you know, to just you know, the stigma and the, the, the bravado. It just needs to go away because there are so many things that just sit on your shoulders, and, and, and talking about it helps, seeing somebody helps. We, we all have ways, but, but, you know, we've had friends taking their own lives and we've got to be better about you know finding those things that fix it it's not alcohol it's not um we got to find those avenues be it be it someone to talk to be it professionals medical professionals or, or doctors for me it was writing um but you know I, I would encourage you know people to find that that method um yeah absolutely so when um i want to talk about about mental health and law enforcement because this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, um, not just in my role as as uh, you know the the founder of the Wounded Blue, but because just like you, I have seen the effect that a law enforcement career can have on people that I cared about. Um, you know, you talk about police suicide, and it's a, this is a very very tough topic to talk about. And also a tough topic to understand because there are truly no true statistics. We don't know how many officers kill themselves because very often these these deaths may be attributed to something else, uh, either you know an accidental overdose or uh, I was cleaning my gun. How many times have we heard that? And uh, and we all look at it and go, I'm not I'm not buying it. And and it it's it's you know. The number of police officers who die in the line of duty is tragic, but the number of officers who give, who, who take their own lives in, is is far, is far and away a much higher number. There's estimates up there, uh, out there, excuse me, that three to five times the number of police officers who get killed in the line of duty will die by their own hand. That is a startling, startling statistic.
and it's one that we need to um, that we need to fully uh, embrace and say we've got to do better. Do you do you think that when you when your book um, is in the hands of of other police officers, is it your desire that um, that someone who is struggling, that a cop who is struggling with with some of their journey, might be um, inspired to seek the the help that they need and realize that they're not alone? Yeah, one thousand percent, absolutely. And you know when when I was sitting there with a laptop in front of me having to go, I'm Googling, you know, waterproof keyboards. Cause I'm sitting there over my <laughs> keyboard, just bawling, you know, I'd like to think I'm a tough guy, but just the therapy of sitting there crying over those keys, you know, those words through those tears came out on the paper as, as you know. And, and when you read it, you, you put yourself in those positions and you, you were back at work and you, you remember those moments. If that book flops and not a single person in the world reads it but one person picks it up and reaches out to me and says this saved my life or this helped me that's it that's it i would i would consider it a success because so many of us put on that cape of invincibility and we're not you know we're not we're not invincible and these things really do affect us so and i not just not just for the cop though you know there's there's husbands or wives or spouses of, of of law enforcement who are like, you know, why is my husband got that thousand yard stare at the dinner table? You know, why is my husband or why is my wife at a soccer game and, and not paying attention? Why am I having a conversation with them and they're not hearing a single word I'm saying? Well, sometimes we go home and we take that and we just bury it deep inside and we don't want to explain it to our spouses or our family members and we just bury it. And I think for even the family of law enforcement. You know, if you have a son who's a police officer or, or a wife or, or anybody, and you don't understand why they're acting a certain way, hopefully reading these words, you'll you'll kind of put yourself in our seat for a minute and go, that makes sense. Now I know why. Um, there was that movie recently that came out. Um, uh, I can't remember its name, but he, he sits down after a long day of work dealing with some bad stuff, and he sits down at the table, and he's just got that thousand-yard stare, and his kids are, Dad, Dad's home, and... And he's just got that stare. And I looked at my wife, I'm like, yeah. And she's like, I've seen that look before. So I think it would help the family members understand why we are the way we are sometimes. You know, why we may seem a little distant or why a little grumpy sometimes or maybe help them have a little patience with us. But yeah, I, I definitely want this to resonate, you know, with the law enforcement community or, or the first responders. You know, my brother-in-law is a firefighter and 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 they deal with it too, you know. And so it's, it's for all of the first responders, but, you know, just happens to be I'm a cop. And, and at the same time, by giving a, a glimpse to the, the reading public, not even those that are not involved in law enforcement, but for them to get a, um, a, a taste of, of what you've experienced and allow them a glimpse into um, the reality of, of, of what law enforcement faces, that type of communication can open up a lot of, of, of hearts and maybe create some tolerance um, amongst the public for the, the tough, you know, when they have interactions with law enforcement that they may never have expected. And I know that's part of your goal as well. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm not a real political guy and I try and avoid those topics like the plague, but, 
you know, we went through a defund the police movement and, and you can kind of see the, the pendulum swinging. So I think the timing of this couldn't be more perfect where the public is looking for something you know, they're looking for to support the police again. I think that pendulum is definitely swinging back to where people realize the need for law enforcement. But on top of that, you know, getting a getting a chance to see things from our perspective and see how it affects us. I, I you know, I don't think of a better way to do it than put it on a, a story where people can, you know, can uh, resonate with. Exactly. When when is the book uh, going to be available for the public? 27th of October, 2023. That's right around the corner. It's right there. Is there um, uh, a place where people who are seeing this can go up and, and um, you know sign up for a copy? Yeah, the, the website is octoberstrong.com. Uh, there's a link on there. It's also on Amazon. It'll be available for the Kindle, working on the Audible version. Um, I understand there's a very amazing guy that's going to be doing the 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 audio for it. He's he's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, okay, so octoberstrong.com yes, and people can sign up now for when it when it actually comes out. Yeah. And they can get it on electronic version, they can get it on on uh, in a written copy. And they can buy there. It's pretty much going to be a bit, be available where, wherever you can buy any book, Barnes and Nobles, um, airports, all that stuff. Um, uh, but I don't know how much time we have, but I think it's important that people understand about the money. I want to make that pretty you clear. You're absolutely right. So, you know, books can, they can, they can make big money. They can make little money. You never know. You never know. But what was where's the where's the, where where are the royalties going? Okay, so I want to make this one hundred percent clear. So when we wrote this, um, yes, I, I get it. I put keys on a keyboard and I and I put it together with my sister and and, and a great team of editors. Um, Lori Lynn was amazing. Justin Palms, of course, amazing. Uh, great team. Um, but when I sat down with my sister and we looked at it, I'm telling other people's stories. And I'm telling the stories of people involved in the Route 91 Film Festival or the the music festival. Um, I could not, for the life of me, wrap my mind around taking a dime for it. It just felt dirty because there are other people's stories. They're not my stories. I'm telling the stories of others. So um, my sister and I, when we kind of put it all together, we said, "Let's let's not touch this. Let's make sure it goes to a good cause." So we decided to give it all to charity. And what charity is that? That would be the Wounded Blue. <laughs> it's a nice plug for the Wounded Blue. But no, I mean, I I know what you do, and I know the work that you put in, and I know you very well, and uh, I can't think of a better place to go. I mean, you could do anything in this world with a lot of money, but your entire day, 24-7, is revolved around helping someone else besides yourself. So the, the money's going to the Wounded Blue, every penny of it. So I... You know, I can't thank you enough for that. You know, the 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 men and women who will be touched by that, uh, who are watching this show or listening to it right now, um, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about all the work that went into this creation. I mean, it's like giving birth. When when you write a book, it's like giving birth. Um, it's a it's it's an incredible amount of effort. It's an incredible amount of time, and and also of of giving of your soul. So the fact that that you've chosen to, um, you know, give whatever royalties come out of this to the Wounded Blue, um, I thank you personally. My organization thanks you, and uh, I, 
uh, having had the opportunity to read it, I know what a powerful story it is. And, uh, and I, I, I just wish you the best of luck with not only this, but now that you've gotten the writing bug, who knows what's going to come next, right? Something will come next. <laughs> Something will come next. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to be here with me, Alan. And uh, once again, uh, you can get this book at OctoberStrong.com. Read about it and, uh, and make sure that you, that you pay attention to this book because I'm telling you, it's something else. So um, thanks for coming, sir. All right. Before we go, once again, I want, to, I want to talk about how you can help the American law enforcement community. Um, go to thewoundedblue.org. See who we are. See what we do. We have an amazing film on Amazon.com called The Wounded Blue, which I can tell you will blow your mind. Everybody thinks that if a police officer gets severely injured in the line of duty, they're going to get a great pension. They're going to be taken care of medically. Their life is going to be made as whole as possible. And um, sometimes that happens, but a whole lot of times it doesn't. And the Wounded Blue is the only organization of its kind that provides not just peer support, but um, all kinds of other support as well, including education and uh, the, our National Law Enforcement Survival Summit, which we just held here in Las Vegas. It was an incredible success. Um, also, if you like country music, go to adoptacop.com. Adoptacop.com, where you can get the brand new CD of the amazing country music group, Ricochet. Your mama's, your, I, I'm not gonna sing it for you, but they're a great group. And the only place you can get this CD is by going to adoptacop.com, doing a $20 donation to the Wounded Blue, and you will get this fantastic CD. I was just down in Nashville with, uh, with Heath Wright and the band Ricochet uh, at the Grand Old Opry where they sang some of their best songs. So go to adoptacop.com. Thanks for joining me here at, uh, at our show, and um, I'll see you again next week. Thank <laughs> you.